Welcome to the Finding Homes podcast with Home for Good. In this series, we're going to be exploring the urgent need for families in the UK today for children who are waiting. And who knows, they could be waiting for you. This series is going to focus on finding homes for black and minority ethnic children who are waiting for adoption or fostering and inspiring individuals couples and families considering what their part in it was is and could be and hopefully you will also be considering that as you listen to this and listen to their stories joining me throughout this series are bernadette heron a social worker in the adoption team in buckinghamshire council who's passionate about sharing with people and potential adopters in the black community in buckinghamshire and beyond the difference they could make to children in care I'm also joined by Tarn Bright, the CEO of Home for Good, a UK-wide charity that's committed to finding homes for every child who needs adoption, fostering, or teenage support and, and lodgings, and who herself is the adoptive mum of two boys. Welcome to you both. It's great to be here with you. And, um, you know, today we're going to be looking specifically at, at families the need for families, but the need to reach into a community that, that really hasn't fully always grasped just what a role they can play in this story. Bernadette, I'm going to start with you because I know that your vision has been, you know, when we're talking about children, to engage the African and Caribbean community more in adopting. But there is quite a long story of adoption within the community um and and a very informal story but but quite set root can you can you tell about that it's um within our cultures so in africa and in the caribbean it was very natural for children to be raised with other family members whether that be an aunt or grandparents i think we all know someone even if it's maybe us ourselves that have spent time with an extended family member. You know, if a mother was struggling for whatever reason, it would be natural for somebody else to step in. So there was never really this need for formal adoption and fostering. And so I think then what's happened is that when our parents came over to this country, mm-hmm. I think that our communities are still not aware of the real need of children within the care system because they know that naturally they would step in. So with this, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting and informative that you, you have highlighted the fact that it was just a natural mm. thing within the community for a relative, an aunt, an uncle, a, a grandparent, a, even friends, mm. to take somebody and say, right, you know, we're going to raise you as our children either for a short time or long term. But when there was that wave of immigration from the Caribbean and from Africa to Britain, why did that change? I think it's because um, I think they had expected um, within England that those from, the, from Africa and the Caribbean, because they could speak English, that they would assimilate quite easily into the culture. I don't think that um, there was any real kind of thought into the fact that these cultures need a lot more. 
just because they can speak English, it doesn't mean that they are the same. So the needs of children, the needs of families weren't met. And um, with that grew uh, the, the issue that we have today, where we have an over-representation of Black and African and children of my ethnic, um, minority ethnic cultures in the care system. And actually, it does seem to be growing. Now, that's, that, that in itself is something that, that we need to address. But, but first of all, can we just go back a minute? Are you saying that when people came over, when, when people came over as immigrants, that the natural thing of just taking care of children, regardless of whether they were officially yours or not, they became yours just by virtue of the fact you'd taken them in, that that, that broke down because there were certain criteria to be met maybe in Britain that there weren't in the Caribbean? Or did it simply break down because people couldn't afford to? Or did it break down because there wasn't the closeness of community anymore? What was the reason why it didn't work? I'm, I'm thinking it probably wasn't the closeness of community. Because mm -hmm. remember, when our parents came over here, they still left their support network back in the Caribbean and Africa. So, for instance, with my family, they, you know, they didn't have their parents that they could lean on. So I think that that generation just didn't have the support that they really needed. Um, they were misunderstood. We know that the children were misunderstood in school. Issues were raised about the children that weren't necessarily issues per se. It's because there was a real lack of understanding of the culture. I think one of my passions is the fact that I'm not sure whether the black community are aware that there is such a need. And so it's about highlighting that, getting the message out to the communities, because there are families out there that can help, that want to help, have the resources to be able to help. What are the myths under the, the, the situations or the, the things that people think are the problem? Because if there is a problem mm -hmm. with getting young black kids adopted, it must be because there's a narrative that suggests that it will be a different type of adoption. And, and if there is, what is that? Well, I think if, if we go right back to um, the starting point where we're, we're talking about assessments, mm -hmm. so social workers actually doing the assessments, I, I, I think that people, I know certainly before I became a social worker, I thought that you had to have a certain criteria before you became an adoptive parent. I believe that you had to have your own home, for instance, but actually, no, you don't need to have your own home. Um, don't you? No, you don't need to have your okay. own home. You can be renting. Okay. Okay. So within Buckinghamshire, what we've done um, on our website, we have what we call a readiness checker. It's really good. I actually went on it the other day and just went through it myself. Mm -hmm. So it, it dispels some of those myths, but it actually, it's a tool that helps you to almost like self-assess to see if you're ready. So it will tell you on there, you don't need to have your own home. You can be renting. So that's one myth. Um, another a question is, do I need to be a UK citizen? Yes. So you must have a fixed and permanent home. Mm -hmm. um, you must have lived in the UK for at least a year. Mm -hmm. um, but we have supported people of many different nationalities to become adopters. We have also supported people whose UK residency may change in the future, including people working in the armed forces. 
So these are sort of myths that we need to dispel and get the message out there to everyone. Okay. Do you need to have a spare room? Now, can I just say, I know that's a big one because over years we've been speaking to people <laughs> about adoption. So I, I can't afford a place with, with more rooms than I've got at the moment. But what's the story with that? Well, it is ideal that the adopted child does have their own room. So mm-hmm. that we do say that there is a requirement to have a spare room. Um, so what we do when we put people through the readiness checker, this helps them to then prepare and get ready. Mm-hmm. Um, we also say to people, you know, if they've got any, um, any uh, things that they want to do within the home, any holidays that they might want to take, they might want to do all of this before they actually engage in adoption. Because as we all know, the process can take some time and it yes. can be quite emotional as well. And so we need to make sure that people are at the, the right stage emotionally. It's, it's, it's full on. Yes. Um, I think also maybe for the black community, I think that possibly they felt or feel that they're being judged by these professionals. Mm. I've been through the assessment process myself. We were foster carers. Yes. And, you know, there is something about sitting down in a room and talking your business with with a stranger. No, it's really, I'm really glad <laughs> yeah. that you've, you've flagged this because I... I, I I don't know if it's an immigrant mentality or if it's just a Caribbean and African thing, but it's almost like you don't tell people your business. What, you don't tell people your business. No. You don't tell people what they need to know. I remember when we were going through the process, mm-hmm. um, when my wife Carrie and I were going through the process, going, oh, they've asked this question, and she'd be happily filling out the form, and I'd be saying, what do they want to know that for? <laughs> they want to know that for? I was, I was very much raised with the philosophy that you have to be honest. Yeah. But that honest means that everything you say has to be true. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everything that's true has to be said. Yes. So <laughs> it's, it's really sort of important to realise, I think, that people don't want the information to potentially use it against you. Absolutely. They actually want the information to ensure that you get an absolutely right fit so that when the child comes to you, they are home for good. Yeah, absolutely. And another myth and another area is that people sometimes ask, will my personal history affect my adoption prospects? Mm. And the thing is, we we say um, every adopter we work with have had questions or doubts. And yes. the reality is you're likely to be far better suited to adoption than you think you are. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking for real people, aren't we, with real experiences that have Built resilience yes. that have, um, have got something they can hand down to a child and support a child and understand maybe what a child has gone through. So if you've had your own history and you've managed to get through that, that can only be a strength. Yes. So if somebody has had, for instance, a, a conviction in the past at some point in their dim and distant past and, and want to adopt and have a real heart and desire for it, will that prevent them from being considered? So um, having past convictions doesn't necessarily exclude um, you from adopting. What we will do is that we will consider every conviction, but obviously we wouldn't be able to um, take on anybody who has offences against children um, Mm. or certain sexual offences. But yes, convictions, we've had people that have convictions. We just risk assess. Yes. Yeah. Tell me, why does this area matter so much to you, Bernadette? Oh, wow. Okay, so I think my first career was actually in banking. Mm -hmm. And uh, as all of us, you know, when you're watching the 
the charity programs, uh, you know, talking about children and children need. And I remember at the time going through the Voice newspaper when it used to be printed and they used to have photographs of children, the local authorities yes. used to advertise. And um, I, was, I, I was a parent already and I just felt I have, I have more to give. So we became foster carers initially. And, um, and then after that, I decided I wanted to do a little bit more. So I picked myself up, took myself to university when I had my three children, the most difficult but rewarding thing that I've done, and became a social worker. And my main aim for um, becoming a social worker was to find good homes for children. Mm. It's a real passion for me. And then once I've got into this in the fostering and adoption teams, I realised that for our black children, it's taken them, it's harder to place for them. Also, I, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to meet young people that were taken care of um, by white foster carers and talking to them about their experiences and how it affected, particularly Derek Wissing, he will talk about that quite openly, affected his mental health. The more research I did into this, I realised that Yes, we can prepare and we can um, support our white foster carers and our white adopters to take care of black children, but there is something missing. Mm. And these young people who have been through the ex this experience, we have to learn from them. And they say there was a gap. Now, I know that you are, are very keen on people within church as well, you mm -hmm. know, black people within church being engaged what do you think with the exception of course of people knowing your business what do you think has been a hindrance up to this point that, that's prevented more people who have a have a heart for it and have care and compassion from actually engaging with this and, and being more more willing to adopt oh, that's a big question because I found when I have gone into some churches or where I've been into some communities and I start to talk about adoption and what I do, it always catches the air of people. They are mm -hmm. very interested. So I think it really is about our responsibility to just, just to take it out there. Absolutely. And start that conversation. And that's why I don't necessarily just want to keep it within bucks. I think that we need to start a conversation that's just going to flicker nationally and just get the awareness out there again. Thank you very much, Bernadette. And for, for you, Tan, awareness as the CEO of Home for Good is what you are all about. This is what you're, you've committed your life to. Can you tell us a bit about your story and a bit about Home for Good? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you both for being here and allowing us to journey this with you. And you're absolutely right. The raison d'etre for Home for Good is that we can speak to the 50,000 churches across the United Kingdom. And we can not only advocate on behalf of the children and young people who need a home, but we can help find the right people from the backgrounds, from the experience set that we need, from the lived experience. And we know that with our work with local authorities and regional adoption agencies and voluntary agencies, that they say to us that the home for good people, individuals, couples and families, that we refer to them due to our church engagement, are so much more resilient 
as individuals, as units, because of their connectivity to the local church. So from every which way round we look at this, and from just listening to you and Bernadette speaking about that gap, we recognise we've got a really important role to play. We see ourselves in one sense as, as, as translators, particularly for the local authority and the agencies, because the church can at points be seen as, as, as sort of slightly mythical, slightly untouchable, slightly odd, certainly had its own history, shall we say, and not always positive. Let's be real and honest with each other about that. So when we speak to local authorities, they say to us, well, why is it that those that are coming to us through Home for Good just have got this resilience about them, this, this uh, quality that says they're going to dig in? And I say this, well, the church in its most profound form is a community where each should be looking to the other for shalom, for well-being. And what we see in the local church is actually a connected group of individuals seeking to live their lives out with a common set of values. In one sense, your theology becomes somewhat irrelevant at this stage. It's about the fact that you're committed to a group, a tribe, who will look to you and you to them for, as I said, each other's best interest. And when the church is working well, my gosh, that's what we see. With all the challenges that we've just mentioned before, let's not be naive about that. So local authorities say, where does this resilience come from? And we say, it's because, take Tarn, two children, solo mum. I work full-time. I have to work full-time. Just to even live in London, I have to work full-time. When my children need support with attending CAMS appointments, doctor's appointments, dentists, when frankly I just need a little bit of a breather, I have five or six connected families who call themselves covenant family and they love and take responsibility for my children in the way that I do. And they've taken time to understand Mac and Charlie. They've taken time to understand my interpretation of my children's needs. They've written, uh, sorry, they've read books that have been written about trauma and attachment theory. And whilst it doesn't always make looking after my two children the easiest of experiences, they're up for the task. And it's that which local authorities, agencies and agencies see in the families that come through Home for Good, that there is both a bias for justice, because I believe that does come from our faith, but it's this tribe and this community that I reference that creates placement stability. And I'm absolutely firmly of the belief that the placement that I have with Mac and Charlie is as stable as it is because of the fact that I am attached to church. And therefore, that is now becoming something that local authorities are saying to us, we want more of wherever you're finding those families. Now, let's add to that then the need for black and minority ethnic carers. We at Home for Good are committed to finding black and minority ethnic homes for the children who are overrepresented to find a place within. And yet we have to acknowledge ourselves as an organisation that our reach is limited. And so, David, just the fact you're with us here today and Bernadette's with us here today from Buckinghamshire Council, we are doing a very concerted job and effort to reach communities but it can't be transactional. 
It has to be relational. And it has to be one that says, we need friends who are in those communities to speak to their communities to say, right, we've got an issue here. We need to tackle it together. And as a result of that, we can reach more into the communities to reduce that gap so that children and young people are placed with families with whom they feel a kinship, with whom they can look to and not feel or see an immediate difference. They can be in the park with and someone's going, that's not your mum, foster carer or otherwise, because there's not an immediate physiological variance of skin colour. These things, as we know, make such a difference. And that is why we at Home for Good have made this one of our top three strategic priorities. We're not messing about. We believe these children deserve to find a home where they have an immediate fit that is already one obstacle out the way. And I think that's why it's so important that we're real on these podcasts, because we are both first and foremost wanting to attract individuals, couples and families from within the black and minority ethnic communities in this country. But we are also a learned group here who says, look, we acknowledge the institutional challenges there. We acknowledge institutional racism that is there. We acknowledge that bringing people into your business is a really, really challenging thing to do. But what we're doing is we're saying we believe that the church is really well placed because of the way that people naturally connect. It's a brilliant place to bring children and young people into that, to not only support the carers, but to support the children. But what we're actually most saying is the healthiest way to address having children join us is when we first got our own motivations sorted. Yeah. And if those motivations are actually not about wanting to add to our family, but rather seeking to be family for these children, mm-hmm. it changes everything about how we enter the process. Thank you so much already, Bernadette Heron, Buckinghamshire Council. Tarn Bright, CEO of mm-hmm. Home for Good. So the children are there. The support's there. Are you there? Stay with us for part two. It's wonderful to have all the kits and more. Educator, musician, composer, MBE, and adopted mother. Paula, tell us a bit about your family and your decision to adopt. So in my lovely family, my husband, uh, Ken, a lovely man, and then there's my son, James, uh, who's now 19, and my lovely daughter, Aaliyah, um, who is 16. And why did I choose to adopt? Well, actually, when I was about 21, it was only about three years ago, I'm joking, um, I'm sorry, I'd always wanted to, whether or not I um, had my own birth children, it was a passion, and I think it's, just having that love for children, full stop. Did you have any concerns in advance regarding your decision? I didn't have any concerns whatsoever. Uh, but I think, I like to think I probably came into it a bit naively because I was so passionate about having children in my life. You know, crazy as I was, I was already um, at work, you know, almost 24-7 sometimes, you know, with kids there the whole time. And, um, you know, I was doing something that I loved and was being paid for it. But so I didn't think, I just thought, no, I still want to have kids when I go home as well. Um, So I didn't have any, you know, in terms of any stories that I'd heard or whatever. I think because, you know, if people want to say, well, you know, you've got to have children that will need a lot of support. They've gone through so much. 
I was already working with children who had gone through a lot as well. And so I suppose in naivety, I think, well, I guess maybe at the end of the day, they would go home. But it was, you know, never really thought about that 24-7. But because in the nurturing school that we had, and knowing that you had that support, you were seeing the difference in, in people's lives that were being made. And you, so you're probably thinking for yourself, well, I can do that with the support of other people and I've got this wonderful husband. Then, you know, uh, I think there was a lot more to it. But so I didn't have any perceptions. I have heard of people that may have said, well, you know, maybe a couple that for sometimes, you know, what a journey that they had been on. Some people may have said, well, you, you, you're a, adopted. It was like, oh, you, I don't think anybody was sort of saying, well, why are you doing it? Or, um, or you know, can, can't you have kids or whatever? Um, there was no, no I, I think I just came, went into it. I didn't really... And if there had been some things, it didn't affect me because my passion was just to be a part of somebody's lives and then to be a part of mine. What were your perceptions around adoption before you adopted? And had you, had you heard any stories from other people within the community about their experience of adopting, either with the social services or with their families or with children? I, I, it's really hard to say. I, I hadn't, to be quite honest, I hadn't had any sort of any anything negative, anything positive. I hadn't really had much to do with anybody that had really adopted. Uh, a good friend of mine, I think his friend had adopted, and and sadly for them, the adoption didn't really work out for them. So I think that was probably my only experience. Thinking I'd want to do it, suppose. It didn't, but there was me again thinking, yeah, no, 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 I'll bring it on. I would, I would do my utmost. And you think, you, you, you think that you thought of the worst possible scenarios and how you would work through it. So prior to it, no. Since since that, um, you, there have been other perceptions of, of what people may think about, um, you know, go through the process. And the people who have approached me and have said, you know, you know, how is it being? How was it for you? Um, what would you say, or, you know, what are the pros, the cons, the whole process for us was quite unusual. Um, and it was very, very, very positive and it, it, it can really, um, but I know that people who have gone through it where for whatever their circumstances or for whatever reason, it hasn't been as, as positive, um, as they have, would have liked or have hoped because it can be quite intrusive, all of those things that, that go because you are people are making assessment of you because they are going to be putting children into your care for the rest of your life, for their lives, um, who may have been through so much already. And it, so it's quite hard. So I have to admit, so maybe some of the questions and the things that you, you may have to be subjected to, not on sorry, or frighten anybody, but it is about some of that questioning, and it makes you think about who you are as a person and what you are able to, to take on, whether it be emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, all of those sorts of things that you have to consider. Well, why do you think there's a gap in terms of the number of black and mixed race children that need to be adopted and the number of adopters of color that there are? I find that, you know, that, that quite. In terms of the, that, the gap in terms of um, black adopted parents, 
um, I find that quite quite difficult. I think some of the things I've already mentioned about just the, just the process of um, adoption, whether you're, you're black or white or whatever, it's it can be intrusive. You know, I might start with stigma. People so straight away think, well, you, you can't have children. You know, I'm not going to generalise and say that's something that might be something within the black community or the white community. It's it's. It's a fact, and, and anybody feeling like, oh, we're already going through that bereavement if if they're unable to have the children. So to be reminded of that might be quite difficult. But, um, or, you know, a friend of mine, when I, I actually proposed that question to, to, to him, and it was, he came back with them saying, well, um, well do you actually, it was quite sad, you, you, you're the one, you, you're the mistake. And he's like, what? He says, well, his other brothers, they all gave, you know, produce children. And you haven't, and I'm thinking, oh, ouch, you know. Um, so whether or not, whether you're black or white, whatever, the fact that there may be those thoughts uh, about you, but but so that you know, there may be that, that stigma. There could be um, financial um, reasons, um, and that could be whoever, whatever, and especially now with the cost of living as well. But you go a few years back, uh, it could also be. Sometimes there are lots of different family structures and whether or not that this might be more common within the black community or wherever, but where, where um, people take on other people within their family. So, you know, you could be the auntie, you take on, you know, two other, or you could be grandma or whatever. And there's, there may be a lot more, I can't say, that, that's going on. So there is that already in addition to the children that they have, they're, they're, they're caring or providing that additional support in an, in, an, in another way as well. There may be some people that may not feel, um, I suppose, as trusting of the system, whatever that might be. And, um, you know, you've, you've heard stories of people, I've read stories about people where, you know, they've, they, they're moving ahead with adoption and, and the brakes have been put on for certain reasons, because of their ethnicity, because they're not reflected, they may be black, but they're not, not reflected, they may be black Caribbean, but they're not black African, all those sorts of things. And that may put the, the halt on um, the process for them, uh, which has ended up with them having to sort of push proceedings further using their own money in order to, to get. So there could be, it could be a range of things. I personally feel that needs to be looked into a lot more because of, for me, as a black person, um, uh, I I can see that the things that could have stopped me, not necessarily as a black person, but just as a person. But having said that, the whole process was very quite, quite smooth. You know, I had a few skeletons in the cupboard. So being able to share um, my life, my upbringing, um, which is going to impact on the way that you, you know, um, bring up your own children, your own parenting skills, all those sorts of things you're considering. But when I talk, initially talked about the financial implications, you know, and I think another thing I wanted to say is maybe the, the information that um, people may be accessing may be not as comprehensive or um, as I'd like to know. So there may be things that have changed. So there, there may be some not enough information, misinformation rather rather from you know, who's given it or from store it, all those sorts of things. Um, so it's about having 
that, that those lines of communication that people can access and have a re and, and I know you can ring up and can find out, you know, what does it really involve. And if somebody is listening now and listen to your story and they're thinking of adopting, what would you say to them? Um, if, you know, for people that are thinking of adopting and um, or fostering, first and foremost, I, and I sort of mentioned before, it's about having that, that really good supportive network because that's something that's really helped carry um, me through. But it's, it's, um it's about really getting that that information and and it's it's not just it's not just from the system or the you know the but also um listening to the twos and the fours as well um from people who have and, and I, I know which has been quite useful is that over the years uh, not so much now but in the early days where um there's the authority that I worked with, um, they would probably they'd ask be ask people to talk with me, people who were considering um, adopting, and so it may be you know worth talking with other people that they may know, or training or, or attending some of those courses um, uh, in order to get that that sort of deeper understanding um, and. And also, more important, remembering about these these children at the heart of it, and that's what we need to remember. And and I think when I was going through the adoption process, you know, for me it was in that moment, and I was quite naive. And you're thinking about these lovely children coming to you, and you think, well, oh, some of you know, a number of them will be will have gone, they've been placed in care for whatever reason, gone gone through a lot, and um. Is how you, you you're thinking about how you're meeting their needs now, but you've got to think about years ahead as well. And um, you know, for me, it, and I mentioned earlier about the support, um, it's about that training, it's about that constant, you know, um, being kept up to speed with what's out there to, to support you as well. And you know, you would look at the needs of my own children and and how some of what might have impacted on them earlier on in their life? What has that been? Uh, has that is only beginning to to manifest itself, manifest itself more now? But you know, over these nineteen years, I figured I never thought this, I never thought that, I didn't realise this, you know. And it's about that honesty, about you know, about that realism, about um, the, the joys of doing it and the challenges of 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 doing it, um, but keep the children at the centre and if you have a heart for that those children um um and you've got a really good support network around you um but i i would just say oh go for it just we need more people <laughs> more people um and the difference you can make to to someone's life um however small could be a big thing for for them later on in life you come from a big family, so you've seen lots and lots of situations yourself growing up. But were there things that you encountered that you weren't prepared for, that you'd like to sort of flag to people who might be considering adopting? There have been a number of challenges, and I think um, I think one of them I mentioned is that you, you, you don't realise sometimes what is, um, 
if you don't know enough about somebody's medical history or whatever or or have a full picture and it's not always easy to have a full picture of that child you know their circumstances sometimes how it begins to manifest itself so in terms of that the the, the challenge has been um it's really hard it's really hard to say that because there've been a number of challenges that you you've met with with my partner we've been you know been able to tackle them and just teenage years in themselves, you know, it's a challenge. So, but I've seen with with you know with my children that some things have manifested themselves. So some of those challenges are a bit more show themselves now. So that's an extra of the hormones, other challenges, but other things that might have any traumas that they'd had, and it's dealing with that 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 now that's been I think for me personally the, the biggest challenge. And I think if I knew I'd known a little bit more. And if I'd had a bit more support, um, uh, then I would have felt a bit more prepared, if, if that's. Uh, thankfully, with my own school, with some of the training thing, I'm able to address some of those things. Um, but the biggest joy, the biggest joy of um, uh, growing in my family through adoption as well is watching how it's just, it's been able to, have that forgiven that family. It's about um I'm just trying to think of how to, to put that. It's about yeah, giving them that that family, they it's it's what you've done for them, but also what they've done for you as well. Um and it's it's that richness of life. And when I look at my children and for them the family is so big for them and it's not just the immediate family our little unit our little it's that extended family and how many times they're asking when are we going to meet with you when are we going to do this when mum when are you going to organize something again when are we going to do this and the joy and the days after when they just keep talking about the lovely um so it's 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 seeing seeing that growth that growth in those children as watching them overcome obstacles it's begun again to understand who they are and whether you know um yeah it's just been family <laughs> so that's it for episode one we've taken a brief look at the history of care in the black community and we've looked at the landscape for children in care who are waiting for homes right now and the need there is especially for black and minority ethnic adoptive parents and foster carers. We'd love you to come back and join us for part two, where we'll be hearing from Simon, who was adopted as a young black boy and is now a foster carer, a birth and adoptive dad. And we want to learn more from him about why it's so important for children to grow up in a home and community where their culture or heritage is reflected.